Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, April 3rd, 2022, and this is show number 882. Well, before we get started, I have an announcement to make. There will be no live show next week, the 10th of April. Steve and I are going to go visit his sister in Arizona, and while we're there, we get to meet up with the most awesome Bodie Grimm of the Kilowatt Podcast. We're super excited to meet Bodie for the first time. We feel like we've been old friends forever. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if one or more recordings kind of happened as a result of us getting together. Two podcasters, no microphones. That is not the way it's going to end up. Anyway, I'm not sure if I'm going to publish this show super early, like maybe Thursday of this week, or make you wait until Tuesday of the following week when I get back. I'm going to do my best to try to get it out early, but no promises. Don't think that the world has come to an end, that we've missed, we've broken our almost 17-year streak on uh, no missed episodes of the No Cast, but it will come out. Now, speaking of the live show, Steve is currently producing, even as I speak, from his brand new M1 Max Max Studio. Now, he doesn't have a studio display yet, so he doesn't have everything really set up quite right, but he decided to give it a try. Now, his uh, studio display is supposed to come out this week, and of course, it's supposed to come when we're in Arizona. Still got to figure out what to do about that. Anyway, I don't want to jinx the show, but so far he describes using the Mac Studio for the NoSilicast production as, it's like butter. Well, I have some really big news. I got to be a guest on the Mac Geek Gab for show number 922, which comes out on Monday, April 4th. So by the time you're hearing this, it's probably already out. Dave Hamilton and John F. Brown have not had guests on as a rule, other than Pilot Pete, who's been on the show many times, uh, pretty much forever he's been on the show. But I can count on one hand the number of times they've had other guests before, so it was quite the thrill when Dave asked me to join. We had an absolute blast, and Dave even said he'd like to have me back. I love the Mac Geek Gab, so it's a real honor to have had this opportunity. The only downside is that now... I don't have a Mac Geek Gab to look forward to this week. I don't actually go back and listen to myself on other shows. But I hope you'll go check out the Mac Geek Gab in your podcatcher of choice and look for the episode entitled The Cost Mart in Kaskechewan, Mac Geek Gab 922. Last week, I told you about the advances the tutorial guide software Folga had made, and I teased you that I had a video tutorial coming out about Folga for Screencast Online. The good news is that it's been published, but I have even better news. Don McAllister has announced that he's no longer going to ask for credit card details to get the seven-day free trial, and instead he has set up a free membership option. In his words, this new feature allows people to try out a limited subset of the Screencast Online content on the website without the need to share their credit card information. If they wish to become members after a while, they can then sign up for a full membership. So this free membership will be quite limited compared to the full membership. There'll be no access to the SCO Members app or the SCO Magazine, and you'll be limited to one full, uh, free full-length tutorial and one shorter tip tutorial. But it's a great way to see if you get value out of the tutorials at Screencast Online. I think this is a great development, and I'm even more delighted that he decided to make my Folga tutorial the first of the free episodes. So you'll be able to get those with a free membership to Screencast Online. And again, you don't have to even put in your credit card, and you get to see my great content for free. So hurry on over to ScreencastOnline.com and sign up for a free membership and watch my awesome tutorial about Folga. 
As I'm sure you remember, over the past few months, podfeed.com went through a period of really poor performance. My site hadn't been snappy in the last few years with page loads up to six seconds, but it hit a tipping point where it was taking an excess of 40 seconds for pages to load. As I've mentioned before, William Reveal and Bart Bouchatz migrated the services behind podfeed.com that improved performance to where most pages now load in less than a quarter of a second. And I can't be happier. I love it. I bring this up because in Programming by Stealth, Bart did an adjacent episode, as he likes to call them, or a tidbit, where he wanted to walk through the structure of what makes up a web server, what a web server does, what all of the components are, and then walk us through how these things have changed in the nearly 17 years that podfeet.com has been around. As we continue our journey in Programming by Stealth, we're moving from the client side to the server side, so this lesson is really quite relevant to helping our fellow learners understand what's behind the next steps we'll be taking. Now, there was no homework in this episode, but it's also challenging to keep all the pieces straight in your head, so get ready for a fun and instructive tidbit. You'll, you can, of course, find Bart's fabulous tutorial show notes over at pbs.bartificer.net, and you can find this episode in your podcatcher of choice under Programming by Stealth. After Steve made his debut of the Nocilla Castaway shanty, I asked him that, to come back and explain exactly how he did this. And he's come back with an audio recording where he's got little insertions of music that I think you'll really enjoy. A week ago, I released the Nocilla Castaway shanty, the new official shanty of the Nocilla Cast. Since then, a few people have asked questions about how I made it, so I'll attempt to describe the process. Nathan Evans' Wellerman Sea Shanty inspired me to create a Nocilla Castaway shanty with the same tune but lyrics tailored to the Nocilla cast. Writing the lyrics was just a matter of thinking about phrases that describe the creation and evolution of the Nocilla cast and then modifying the words to get some rhyming. The site rhymezone.com really came in handy to quickly find words that rhymed with each other. I knew singing would be the most challenging part of creating this song. So starting with the melody from Evans' Wellerman, I tried singing the melody in the same key, but found it was outside of my very limited range. So I had to bring it down a few notes and change the key to get the song into a range I could sing. Even so, I found I couldn't quite stay on pitch throughout the song. Later, I found I wanted to add some harmony and maybe a musical instrument to the piece to help flesh it out. So I had several problems to be solved here, including... One, I don't sing well, and I can't sing harmony at all. Two, I don't sight-read music for singing purposes. And three, I didn't have an instrument I could play for accompaniment. I quickly realized that I needed a musical software tool to help me accomplish my goal. I found a software package called Sibelius made by Avid that I ended up using. It has a free 30-day trial period, which was perfect for me. The cost to purchase Sibelius is $99 a year, or $13 a month, U.S. It has three key features that satisfied my needs. One, it allowed me to write down notes on a musical score with multiple parts. Two, it supported playback of the notes using a variety of selectable music instruments and synthetic vocals. And three, it provided the ability to export the played score to an AIFF file. It's a much more full-featured tool than I needed, so I just stayed with the features that I needed. Composing the score was a bit of a hunt-and-peck iterative process for me. In Sibelius, I could place a note on the treble clef staff and it would actually play the note for me. I chose an oboe as the instrument to play the melody. 
I sang the first note of the song in the pitch of the range in which I was comfortable singing and found the matching note in Sibelius. Once I had a starting point, I could add the notes going up and down the scale, kind of humming along to guide my guesses. As I added more notes and adjusted them to sound right, I could start playing them back to hear the melody. This took a significant amount of trial and error and was the most time-consuming part of the project, by far. Once I had the verse and chorus composed, I exported the oboe tracks and used them as a reference to help me stay, mostly, on pitch as I sang. It was a big improvement over singing a cappella, but you'll notice several notes that still don't quite sound right. I really liked the harmony sung during the chorus of Wellerman, but I knew I couldn't sing it. So I decided to create a score for the harmony part, and instead of having it played by an instrument, play it as a background bass vocal, which Sibelius can synthesize. Creating the harmony score was quite a challenge for me since harmony does not come naturally to me. I listened to a couple of the versions of Wellerman harmony parts, but they were done in different keys, so I did my best at transposing those harmonies to the key of my shanty. My final check was to play each melody and harmony note together to make sure they sounded like a chord and not dissonant. And now for recording. I used GarageBand to capture all of the vocals and instruments. I imported the oboe and bass vocal AIFF files created by Sibelius into GarageBand. For my singing, I tried using Autotune, called Pitch Correction in GarageBand, to help my pitch problems, but it gave some weird effects that I didn't like, so I abandoned that whole path. Instead, I sang and recorded two tracks each for the verse and chorus parts and laid those tracks on top of each other, which helped somewhat. There once was a lass who liked to chat about tech stuff and Applecroft. She spoke to strangers in store lines, but was it apropos? I also wanted to add a beat, as Nathan Evan uses in The Wellerman. He strikes the backside of an acoustic guitar to the beat, but I don't have a guitar. The closest I could find was a plastic recycling bin that I turned upside down. I put my mic under the cavity and recorded while I struck the bottom of the bin to the beat. I used the oboe from Sibelius to help me hit the notes while singing the entire song, but I wanted the chorus to sound different from the verses. So I took out the oboe from the verse and kept the recycling bin beat. For the chorus, I took out the beat, but left the oboe and added the background bass vocal for harmony, both created with Sibelius. Finally, inspired by Nathan Evans Wellerman, I wanted a good strong hmm at the end of each verse for emphasis. For that, I just recorded myself grunting hmm four times and laid all four tracks on top of each other so it sounded like a group of people all saying hmm at the same time. <laughs> With all of the singing, oboe, bass vocal, bin beat, and grunt parts, I ended up using a total of 11 tracks in GarageBand. In summary, 
I thought this adventure might take a day or two, but I ended up spending close to two weeks to produce the Nocilla Castaway Shanty. It ended up taking longer, partially because I wanted this song to be a surprise for Allison, so I had to wait for times when she was away to sing and record my parts. In the throes of attempting to create the song and failing miserably, a fleeting thought came to mind. That is how well Nocilla Castaway Shai Yamani would have performed the song. I'm sure he would have recorded the song had I asked, but I decided I didn't want to impose. In the end, I was pretty happy with how the song turned out, and the reception has been pretty good. After the challenges I had, my respect for people who can compose, play instruments, and sing well has grown substantially. I can confirm I am not a singer, and I will be keeping my day job. Retirement. So goes the Nuss on the Cast show with listeners far and wide, you know. If you are not subscribed, why not just make it so? Well, that was fantastic. I love the segment Steve did here because, I, like I said, I honestly did not know how he created the official Nocilla Castaway shanty. Sounds like it was a lot of work, but man, he was inspired when his creative juices got flowing. It was kind of weird that he was locked in his room for such a long time and he, he would just be concentrating doing something. And every once in a while, I'd see like music notes on the screen and I didn't know what it was. This also reminds me of when he figured out how to play the theme song to the movie Beverly Hills Cop, which is called Axel F. He pecked out the notes on an on-screen piano keyboard on our 512K Mac eh, circa 1984. Anyway, this was really, really fun. And I'm glad you told us all how you did it. Okay, up next, let's listen in to another CSUN Assistive Tech Conference interview. Well, we were walking by this booth and we saw a brain. And so uh, we definitely had to stop by and talk to Luke Stuber from Cognition. I'll get it yet. Cognition, spelled with an X, which is why I stumbled over the word. Hi, Luke. How are you doing? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm doing good. So you've got a brain here. So that's nice. And you've got uh, some sort of headset. What are we looking at here? We do. So, well, the brain, of course, is a brain, which is, it's not a real brain, I'm afraid, for, for those listening. Um, what we've done with the brain is label different parts that are relevant to our work, because what we make is a brain computer interface um, for people who are profoundly impacted by a physical disability like a, a brainstem stroke for example or a spinal cord injury so even people that don't have the ability to move their eyes at all um, can use the brain computer interface to communicate um, seriously can't even move yep. their eyes and you can tap into their brain yes okay. it's kind of we the the funny example we have of this is if you hold up one hand and say this is the yes hand and one hand and say this is the no hand and then look at me straight on you can see what's happening in your peripheral vision and that's kind of the way that this works is that even if you can't move your eyes you can sort of attend to um, a signal and the, the way that that works is that we if you think of like a, an animated gif sort of thing we have images that are flashing at a certain frequency like uh, nine times a second or 18 times a second and so it creates this nice little wave in the back of the brain the occipital lobe which is processing um, visual information so when we see that curve change basically we can say oh there looking at this button or this button. Oh, no way. It's wild. The future is cool. And we beat Elon Musk to getting it done. So we're proud of that. So what we're looking at here is a headset that does not look bigger than a, a, a VR headset. This yep. is pretty small. It's got 
great big sunglasses on the front for some reason, and it's white, and it straps around the head. Does this, do you have to drill into your head to do this? No, this is non-invasive, right? So we have, uh, it does, it looks a lot like uh, Oculus, like Quest type thing. It looks yeah, like exactly. A headset. Difference being that um, it's uh, augmented reality display, so it's not totally um, opaque. Like, you can see through it and see your environment, and it sort of plops a keyboard down into the world um, along with various other functions. So you can control Alexa um, through this, turn on fans, change the channel on the TV, um, that sort of thing. No, seriously. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Come, we can we can show you. Can uh, I put it on? Yes, absolutely. The comedy of that is always worthwhile yeah. for the audience. <laughs> yes, we can absolutely show you the, um, the way that it works. We're still probably nine months away from having these available to the public, so we're here largely for feedback, which I say, so don't judge me too harshly when you see... So I'll just pretend I'm at CES where everybody says it's coming in three months. Yeah, right, and then it never does. Yes. No, this is, but it's a real thing. It works, um, and uh, we're really proud to be to be bringing it. I mean, this is, um, for a very long time, the world of speech generating, uh, and, and I would say disability generally, has been um, relying on sort of the scraps of consumer technology, right? Um, and what yeah, we let's want take an Android phone and put something on top of it, which, which is cool in a lot of cases, but... And that's, you know, I, I sort of have this hypothetical goal that in five years, uh, personality, or excuse me, personalization should be synonymous with accessibility. Um, and in that world, then I'm so happy that Googles and, and stuff are doing it. Um, what we wanted to do with the brain-computer interface is, is build essentially for what they call the hardest use case first, is like, okay. Oh, right. You can back into other stuff, but exactly. if you start where you've got no no ability to move anything. Right. That's like, you can always move, move up from there, you know, in terms of the technology, but... Um, um, you know, if we build it so it works for everyone, um, uh, you know, they, there's really, everyone has a different physical profile, right? But there's no such thing as accessibility needs, um, except for as a failure of product design. Um, so I, I, I truly believe that everything should be accessible to everybody. Um, and, you know, this is just a step along the way uh, towards that. Yeah, that, boy, you're being awfully profound. I'm not used uh -oh, to that. I'm, I'm kind, sorry. I'm kind of rocked back thinking about what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard it spoken a lot of people say blind, but blind means like a thousand different things. The right. profile of, of low vision is completely continuous, and, and but you're talking about all of these accessibility needs are continuous. Yes, yeah, so absolutely. Maybe one guy can move his eyebrow and the woman can wiggle her ear, but if you can't do either one, then that's another level. Yep, I'd say, you know, if you've, if you've met one person, you've met one person, right? In terms of their needs. Uh, He's going profound again. Yeah, really. No, that, that's that's awesome. But it's totally true, right? I mean, we have to build to the specific needs of, um, you know, of the folks that we're, we're trying to address. And uh, over time, I hope that all of this will be integrated in just general consumer technology. Um, but, you know, for now, we'll sort of try to advance things as we can. So you must have brain scientist people at Cognition or we Cognition. Do. Are you one of them? I do, uh, so I'm a clinical speech language pathologist, um, and I've been making these for a decade or so. Uh, previously with a company called Toby Dynavox. I was the head of product, um, just eye-tracking company. Uh, but we, yes, we have, so we have uh, biosignals engineers, what they would call essentially applied neurologists um, in a, our engineering's in Toronto. Um, so that's where the smart people are. Yeah. So this whole looking at the wave thing, it, how, how are you tapping into what the brain is doing if it's non-invasive? So there's, um, on the back of the device, uh, pressing against the skin, there's six dry uh, electrodes. So there's no gel or anything that's necessary. Necessary. Um, and it can go through hair? Yes. It, uh, now, with a caveat of thickness of hair, because it, it does, we can get about half an inch in or so. Um, you just crank it down on the back of my head? Is that what we're going to do here? Kind of, yeah. It's, uh, so there's like a ratchet system. Um, 
that disconnects these. Uh, so he's taking the uh, the helmet off of the uh, the. Am I allowed to say dummy? Yes, head? The, the inanimate head. Our, <laughs> our, our, okay. our person. Should we name them? Yes, um, name this one Allison. Okay, <laughs> Allison. All right, there we Allison. go. Here's Thank one. Thank you. Well, we our were CEO the, uh, assistant is handing us one here. Yes, he was gonna correct me a little bit. We thought, right? Um, so just to give a sense of uh, sort of how this functions, there's a reflective lens. Um, it's on magnetically the attached there? Yep, you got it. Um, and so these are replaceable. That's kind of the part that we think, you know, might be uh, easier to break. Yes, exactly. But then inside there's a screen. Um, and, and it's just going to look blank right now, which is kind of funny because black is transparent in uh, augmented reality. Um, so it, it doesn't look like there's anything going on. But if I put the lens back on, um, what we can do is is get it set up and show you okay. how it works. Um, uh, part of the reason we use the lens, too, is when somebody composes something to speak, it also will throw it up and display it on the front. Um, so if it is a loud environment or people just want privacy. Oh, so I, I'm going to have this on and I'm going to figure out how to write hello. And it's going to... And you'll see it. And it'll be displayed on the front of the uh, the glasses. Yes. Is this going to take a while? No. We, we uh -huh. got to, oh, okay, we got time to do it. Okay. okay. Yep. Let's, let's do it. So what I will do is I'm going to... Um, yeah, crank this down on my head? Yes, indeed. Uh, I don't think my hair is too uh, thick. And we are, um, this one actually, I'll show you the, uh, there's the mechanism of interaction with this guy is head pointing. Um, so I'll, I'll show you how that works. Just a little bit. Okay. Um, okay. All right. So We're putting put it on my head on. here. Okay. And I'm going to just crank her down. This ratchet okay. I back. see, I see some words, uh, green on the top, pink on the bottom. My brain is getting squished. No, you can go tighter than yeah, that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Keep going. Come on. Yeah, you got it. Okay, let's see. I yeah. want to make sure it's balanced. Yeah, that's pretty good. Okay. Now, and both then, words are backwards. So, I'm just going to hit a button here. It's going to do a three-second countdown. Okay. Um, it's writing something there. I can't read everything that's on screen. Okay. All right. And then if you look down, um, you'll see a bunch of sort of status indicators around. I see two uh, arcs of, of white. And they they have a little dash on either side. Yes, perfect. So okay. try try actually looking down, um, like with your whole head. Oh uh, oh, tilting the head down. Yeah, oh, there I you guess go. That's the right way to put it. Okay, all right. Um, so you can see sort of it's giving you status there of like is the brain computer interface connected? And okay. Then if you look up oh, to I the, see. Okay. The very top, there's a little house. Um, Everything's in reverse. Is it supposed to be? Alexa's backwards. History's backwards. My favorites is backwards. Oh. <laughs> Maybe he's pressing some buttons so on my we'll, head. Uh, cut, and, uh, <laughs> cut right to that. All, All right. right, we're gonna do this re recentering. Okay, it's still. Oh, now it says recentering in two. Now it's in forward. Perfect. Okay. All right. Oh, now I've got all kinds of data at the bottom. Yeah, this is way more interesting yeah. than it was before. <laughs> so we were doing uh, demonstrations, and uh, it evidently it was the wrong setting. But Okay, so I've seen Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and an audio signal here. Perfect. So, yep, give the ability also for, for privacy. People can turn that on and off. At, uh, all right. And then if you look um, sort of the same amount up. Okay, now I see the house. When you're looking at the house, maybe a little bit higher. Okay, I'm looking at the house. Oh, it just turned yellow. There we go. Oh, I just went to home. Now I've got Alexa, I got history, my favorite. Okay, I want to type something. Yes. Okay, I'm going to, no, no, no. Okay, I'm trying to get to the H. Holding yes, that steady. Progress, H, there we go. Okay, I'm going for the E. I got the E is turning yellow. So what I'm seeing is um, a little yellow line on the things I'm looking at. If I hold on it long enough, I get to the uh, a full box around it. Oh, there I go. And is anything showing on screen, Steve? 
Uh, not not yet. yet. So if you go down and there's a blue button with a play. Okay, I would have called that purple, but I'll do it. Does it say hello? Yes, it did. All right, I just, uh-oh, I just type hello at you now. I need to get to the delete key to get rid of that because uh, I'm a perfectionist here. Nope, I'm not getting any keys right now. Oh, there's the space. Oh, there we go. And now it wants me to decide which word I want. Hello. There we go. Alrighty. Yay, look at me go. I know. You that is really that interesting. Quick, yeah. You know? And that's one of the really nice things that we're trying to do is like for folks that are using like eye gaze communication systems, there's normally about a four hour setup and calibration process. And you can see this just kind of takes right off. Um, yeah. Yeah. I could see you could get into that. So the person who's locked in has to be able to move their head to be able to use this. So this one, it's funny because we actually weren't originally planning on making one that was just a head pointing or switch interface. But what we've had is a lot of folks with cerebral palsy that have come to us and, and wanted this solution um, because they have a little bit of head movement or can use head movement with a switch. Um, the brain-computer interface is a slightly more limited interface um, because there's about, you know, eight-ish interactive elements that we're able to support at once. Okay, so it's almost like 8-bit. Yeah, yeah, so it basically it'd be the idea of sort of looking at a quadrant of the screen and then kind of zooming in and then making a selection from there. Um, but we're, one of the big pieces of my work is trying to get that to be as efficient as possible. So you can actually save 57,000-ish things within three hits, three activations. Wow, um, that is crazy. It's cool because right now, brain-computer interface in the laboratory environment, folks are only composing about half of word, a word a minute. Um, oh, wow. We're trying to get to 30. That's the goal. We're getting there. Yeah, so. yeah. This is this is fantastic. Well, Luke, this is really cool. If people want to learn more about cognition, where would they go? Yes. Yeah, so cognition, which is C O G N I X I O N, cognition. Um, and you know. Dot com. Yes. Dot com. And, and the idea is that there's a person. The eye is a person, and then talking to the other eye. So it kind of looks like a little person. Oh, it's very cute. Very cute. All right. This is uh, this is fascinating. I think people are probably definitely going to want to come uh, go take a look at this, and I'm sure they're going to want to see how awesome I look wearing this helmet as well. Yeah, <laughs> Thanks absolutely. a lot. Thank you for your time. This is great. Oh wait, wait, wait. One more question. If Steve hadn't cut it off, you said you have a tech podcast as well. What is your podcast? Yes, Talking with Tech. It's called Talking yeah. with Tech with Luke Stuber. Very. Good. Good. Give you a little plug there. Thank you. Well, I'm really happy to announce that I finally turned off the old and busted podfeed.com so I'm not still paying for two full web servers. Even better, that meant I was able to cancel my cPanel subscription, which was costing me another $15 a month. I'm still carrying all of the new servers, of course, but they're doing such a great job that, uh, I, you know what, I'm delighted to pay those increased costs. I don't resent that money at all. I'd like to thank all of the amazing patrons who helped me come closer to breaking even on the creation of the NoSilicast in costs like what we've been talking about with the web servers. But it's not just the NoSilicast, it's programming by stealth and chit-chat across the pond light. It all does cost a fair bit of money. If you'd like to help cover the cost of creating these shows for you, please consider going over to podfeed.com slash Patreon and choosing a per show amount or you can set a monthly limit to demonstrate the value you get from our content. We now return you to our regularly scheduled programming. Well, it's that time of the week again. It is time for Security Bits with Barbu Shots, and we have a packed full agenda, so I don't think we can do any faffing about it at the beginning with the, how are you today, Bart?
I, I know it, it's quite the show, isn't it? This is what you get. Was it uh, I had all day Friday, all day Saturday? This is what you get when you give me three days to prep a show. Oh, is that what's wrong? <laughs> we have three well, no. deep dives. That and the news. The, well, the news that. did that thing where it, 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 it doesn't come in a predefined flow, it just bursts at you. It's like a bus. Yeah. No security problems, and then three of them all at once. Anyway, three deep dives. So let us start with follow up. Um, I'm just going to say something up front that I just want to make very clear. I am doing my absolute darndest never to say the war in Ukraine, because it is not the war in Ukraine. That is a neutral term. It is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That's mm. why I have tried to write the show notes that way. And if I accidentally say it the other way, I meant it the way that's not neutral. This is not like, oh, there's right, you know, there's good people on both sides. Well, no, there are good people, but there is no... <laughs> There is no ambiguity here. Right, right. This is, right. This is a one-sided affair. Since last we spoke, um, WhatsApp had been blocked by the communications regulator, uh, but that block, they're now like double blocked or blocked in stereo or something because the courts have chimed in and declared Meta, of all things, an extremist organization. And so that's in terrorism Russia. Terrorism laws. In Russia. In Russia, yeah. In Russia, of course, yes. Uh, and Google News has joined the list of blocked websites in Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and an important warning from the Financial Times, who did a bit of digging. Uh, so Russia has sort of their own pers- you know, their own Russian version of Google, which is called Yandex, which you would think of as a search engine. And of course, you're not going to go search the web on Yandex. Why would you? Mm-hmm. But like our Google... Their Google does many, 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 many other things, including a clone for Google Analytics called AppMetrica. A lot of apps in both iOS and Android have AppMetrica as their analytics platform. And all that data is streaming into Russian servers. And under Russian law, the Russian government can basically do whatever they like. Now, Yandex is like, oh, we, we don't just give away the data. It's like, no, but you're in a country where the government can make you just hand it over. So that would count as not giving it away. Now, that's always so, been true. It has always been true, but it is now more important, particularly if you are communicating with people in or around Ukraine, if you have family, friends, etc., that are more directly involved. Right. And it may just be time to just sort of keep an eye on um, where your data is going. So to that end, the really amazing people in MacPaw who are in the middle of like living in a war zone and still managing to keep their operations running, which I think is a miracle already, have managed to go a step further and release a piece of freeware. As far as I think they should charge a cabillion euro for it so that we, you know, we can give them some money. But anyway, they have released a free macOS app called Spybuster, which uses both static and dynamic code analysis to check if your Mac apps communicate with Russia and tell you if they do. Yeah, I, I ran it and um, it says that the signed certificate for Audacity came from Russia. Okay, well, that's a certificate coming. That's not okay. particularly troublesome. If it said it was sending the stuff to Russian servers, that would be very troublesome. Uh, Parallels Toolbox has an office in Russia. Also not a concern, that wouldn't be. But Telegram, it says, possible ties to the Russian Federation contains RU in the bundle ID, RUKeepCoder.Telegram. I don't know what that means. Telegram's an interesting one because... <sighs> Okay, so the app bundle is um, basically the app's metadata. So the app is officially a Russian app. 
um, if there, or at least it was. You see, well, you don't. Yeah, get to that's the your- thing. The developer was in Russia when he developed it, and then he fled Russia. Yeah, this is where we get to, it's complicated. So, right, so when you register an app for the first time, you give it a unique ID forever, unless it mm. becomes a new app. So you can always choose to make your app be a new app. But right. your app bundle is usually your domain name in reverse. Oh, so okay. you, you see them a lot like com.apple.whatever.whatever. Right. So that's how you get a unique identifier, because you can't have two people owning the same domain name. So the easiest way to get a unique identifier is to reverse your domain name. And okay. so if the, if they wrote, if Telegram started as a Russian company, then their bundle ID would be or you dot whatever. And for the sake of all of your users, if you change the bundle ID, everyone would have to go back to the app store and re-buy the free app, which would make, you just leave people behind. You'd lose people, right? They wouldn't get their software updates because it's now a new app. It'd be a giant big bag of hurt. So I'm not surprised they've stayed on the original bundle. That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. But anyway, that's how easy it is to, I, I clicked on the link Bart included in the show notes to MacPaw and ran it and got a, what was a fairly easy to read explanation. Yeah. What, what's most interesting to me is the dynamic analysis where it watches what the app does, because that will tell you if it's actually communicating, which is way worse than just having, you know, links like having a Russian certificate or a Russian app bundle. Yeah. I decided not to run it while we're talking. Probably a good idea. Probably a good idea. In fact, not just probably. Although on your on your M1 Mac, you're probably fine. You could probably transcode a movie while we're talking. <laughs> yeah, but that. anyway, I will join you in that land soon. Uh, and then finally, in the column of fallout from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Spotify are following everyone else and sodding off out of Russia. Okay. In terms of social media news, it's a very mixed bag. So let us get the ick out of the way so we can try to wash that out of our, you know, we can wash it off our hands before too long. So the Washington Post did a bit of digging and they were able to find that Facebook paid a Republican strategy firm to smear TikTok. That's just a new level of... Is it though? I mean, isn't that sort of like uh, dog bites man? (laughs) That's like saying a a politician smeared another politician. It's ugly. They were paying, but they were paying this company to pay influencers to lie. Well, I suppose influencers do lying as a living. So maybe, maybe it's just that I think the whole concept of being paid to pretend to really have an opinion is ick. I don't know. It just just strikes me as like it's you know advertising your own products doing upfront actual with your name on a criticism of your you know of your opposition I have no problem with that I just find this to be ick yeah just, oh I'm just, I'm I'm not saying it isn't ick I'm saying it's dog bites man Pardon? I expect them maybe to I'm be maybe I'm too ick. naive maybe mm. I'm too naive it, it, oh, yeah. I don't know it, I hadn't heard it before it just caught me as ugh yeah. yeah but maybe you're right anyway that, that out of the way Let us now move to the good news. So Instagram have changed how their feed, basically they've changed their UI so users can more easily get to their chronological feed, which means that if you want to avoid the algorithm and its many evils, it is now easier to avoid the algorithm in Instagram. Um, So that is, I think, a very positive development. And WhatsApp are yet again tweaking how forwarding works in an attempt to put the brakes on the viral spread of mis and disinformation. Yeah, they've been trying. <laughs> I mean, you got to give them I, that. They've been implemented quite a few different things, trying to you know, used to be able to limitlessly forward data. 
data. Yeah. Uh, still. Well, yeah, stuff. Yeah, because yes, which went horribly out of control because the disinformation could spread way quicker than any actual information, and it literally resulted in people getting lynched in India. Mm. Um, and so they, I think they first turned it down to you can forward it fifty, t- you know, fifty times, and you know, they've, they've been cranking that screw back. I think it's now limited to one forward to another group within an hour or something like that. Like they really have screwed that right back. So, look. They're obviously doing measuring and doing again, so that's a good cycle to be on. So we shall uh, applaud them for doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we this this just blows my mind. So we've all been fascinated, obsessed. I don't know. There has been a lot of talk. There's been a lot of talk about air tags um, and their abuses. Mm-hmm. Apparently, criminals have no problem with budget. Um, Two completely unrelated news stories broke this week about nasty people using Apple Watches as trackers. So you had them like, that seems like a very short battery life and a very expensive way to track people. But yeah, we had a bunch of criminals using Apple Watches planted on people to, they were planting them on drug mules so that they could rob them after they'd sold the drugs. So basically we pay these people to sell our drugs and then we rob them ourselves. (laughs) <laughs> which is okay. just like okay all the best right. people wow yeah and then a nashville man was arrested after being caught using an apple watch strapped to the wheel of his girlfriend's car to track her to a family safety center where she was fleeing from him how <laughs> i'm trying to I presume he stuck it around her alloy wheel <laughs> the wheel yeah spinning around really fast yeah, well, it didn't break. I, I think it was a really good test of the Apple Watch. I wonder if it came back and said, hey, it seems like you're doing a wheelchair uh, ride. Do you want to start a workout? <laughs> you have burned five million calories. Exactly. That's better than a dog. Oh, that's awful, though. Yeah, so, you know, this whole notion of, well, if Apple didn't sell the AirTag, there'd be no problem with tracking. It's like, yeah, no, that's not how the world works. Why didn't he just give her the watch as a present? Uh, well, because she got deeply suspicious of him and disconnected. Basically, they were sharing all sorts of things on each other's phones and she disconnected it all. And he was like, oh, I'll be having none of that. So he somehow so, attached the, uh, well, I guess the Apple Watch was on his account. And then he did like a Find yeah. My or what? How would you try Yeah, he would have used a Find My then. But I don't think Find My works on the Apple Watch. But you're location tracking because you're tracking your own location. So find my device and it'll ping off whatever Wi-Fi and stuff is coming off the phone nearby. Find, I don't think find my list, the Apple Watch, is something you can you can track. I thought all of your devices show up. Mm. Eh, I'm not going to check now because if I open Safari, I'll kill my Mac. Okay. <laughs> I'll just take a look and scan through. Well, either way, whatever way you did it, it worked. Yeah. Oh, sorry. There, there was mention of some sort of mapping app. Being in the picture. He may have turned on an app as he strapped the ah, watch. I can see Nolan's Apple Watch. <laughs> so apparently, and Steve's Apple Watch. Yeah, so apparently you can. Okay, so if you have to find my... But it's not showing me. Because you're obviously family sharing with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then next up, uh, a quick follow-up, a very easy one. Um, the first state now has Apple's uh, Apple Wallet-based IDs. You can go through TSA security in Arizona with your Apple Wallet if you have it all set up correctly. So yeah, that is I'm excited in about production. that one. And this Friday, we are going to Arizona to meet Bodie Grimm, who does the Kilowatt Ooh. podcast. 
and he has done it. He has set up the Apple Wallet, so we're going to get to see what it looks like. Oh, excellent. I look forward to hearing how you get on. And just, I hope you have a great time there with Bodhi because he, he rocks. Yeah, I really yeah. enjoy being on his show. He's wonderful. We're actually going to see uh, his Steve's sister, but now it's turned into Bodhi and his sister. So that'll be fun, great cool. fun. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, his show with and, you and was f- fantastic. It was really great. Oh, yeah, episode. it was so much fun to record. Um, he's such a nice guy. Yeah. Uh, finally, mystery solved, Allison. You keep on saying, why is my watch not updating itself? Mm-hmm. Well, I always said, yeah, Apple rolled them out slowly. It will happen eventually. I sort of assumed the watch would check once a week. Turns out you may be waiting a little bit longer than once a week. Uh, someone sent Craig Federighi an email and he replied. We incrementally roll out new iOS updates by first making them available for those that explicitly seek them out in settings. Mm. Okay, so that's if you go into settings, great. And then one to four weeks later, after we've received feedback on the update, ramp up to rolling out to devices with auto-update enabled. Huh. So it can take quite a long time, four weeks. They wouldn't do that with a security update, though, would they? I think the one week would be for your security updates because I guess that gives them a week of effectively whatever comes after beta. So alpha, beta, I guess gamma testing, if you're going to make up a word. Mm -hmm. So they give it sort of a week to be in the wild with all of those people eagerly clicking on check for updates. So those the Alice and Sheridans of the world. (laughs) Um, And then depending on how important an update they think it is, one to four weeks later, they push a second button that says, and now everyone gets it. Okay. Interesting. All right. Yeah. So uh, we have wondered how it works. Well, there we go, from Craig Federici's mouth. So there we are. Okay, so the first deep dive, I, I briefly played with doing this as a follow-up story because technically it's a follow-up to a tidbit from Programming by Stealth. Um, but then <laughs> well, I tried to write it as a sentence. It's not quite the same audience. <laughs> it's not quite the same audience, and I tried to write it as a sentence, and I didn't get very far <laughs> because there's a little bit more to it than that. So we talked on the tidbit uh, for Programming by Stealth. There was was a news story at the time about a developer who got cranky with the open source community, not just paying him money. Uh, And so he sabotaged his own open source package in the Node Package Manager repository so that it wouldn't work and it would do an infinite loop on people who use his library. So it was... (sighs) malicious isn't quite the right word, but basically sabotage of his own software package out of crankitude of the fact that he wasn't getting handed lots of money for releasing stuff to open source. The, the why didn't really make much sense. It was a good excuse to talk about supply chain security and the fact that you actually shouldn't automatically just suck in updates into your project. You should proactively update your dependencies, you know, as a conscious decision, not as something that happens automatically in the background. And I think I ended by saying, you know, in this case, it wasn't malicious. It was just annoying. But there's no reason someone couldn't be malicious, Bart said. And I think within 48 hours of my having uttered those words, it happened. And it was an interesting road to how it happened, because I can sort of kind of see how we got here. So as we've mentioned, Russia invaded Ukraine. And one of the developers of an extremely popular piece of open source code for Node.js, it's a it's an open source package for managing inter-process communication within a Node app. Hmm. Very nerdy, but the kind of thing that unless you really know what you're doing, you'd much rather use someone else's implementation than have to roll your own. 
This is a right. real don't reinvent the wheel one. They get about a million. It's actually high. It's nearly 900,000. But for me, that's about a million downloads a week. Which is not nothing. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of one you'd go, okay, well, this is clearly the real one. The one yeah, that people exactly. choose, right? Yeah, and it also has quite a few developers. But one of the main developers, the, the maintainer, in fact, of the project, he has, I'm not sure if he is Ukrainian or has ties to Ukraine. Um, he has a very Ukrainian surname, but a very Irish first name, Brandon, which I guess hmm. is American too. Um, but I, So I'm not sure what his tie to Ukraine is, but he has one and feels very strongly about well, his you know the country to which he has some sort of tie being invaded. So I, I I see I see why he might be cranky. So the first thing he did was release a package called Peace Not War, which would write a text file to the user's desktop, um, and it would have random peace messages in it. And uh, it's kind of weird. It is kind of weird, but sort of protestware, right? So okay. um, I think he describes it in the release notes as add a message of peace to users' desktops and it will only do it if it does not already exist, just to be polite. <laughs> it's actually what it says in the, in, the, in the notes for Peace Not War, which is fine. It releases a separate package, okay, grand. He then added it as a dependency on Node IPC, his so- nearly a million downloads a week. So for the package. non-programming audience, a dependency basically means that it must be loaded for the main module to even function. It goes out and gets it, right? Correct. So if you do an install, it will automatically fetch all of its dependencies because that's how you're supposed to say that this won't work without Node.js, you know, without, say, jQuery or whatever, right? Right. So everyone who was blindly updating their dependencies automatically in a non-conscious way would not have noticed that a whole new package came along for the ride called Peace Not War. And so the first they would have noticed is that all of a sudden their desktop had a funny text file on it. Mm. And we're definitely into grey territory here, right? Releasing the package, not grey territory. Adding the package to Node IPC, very grey territory. I would argue that is not acceptable. I would argue that that's just not It's a breach of behavior. trust, if nothing else. Exactly. But there's a war going on. The guy is probably extremely angry. I... I can bring myself to see his point of view, even though I continue to strongly disagree with it. Right, right. But he didn't stop there. He then added some extra code to Peace Not War so that it would use the IP address to make an educated guess, which is really the best you can do in terms of geolocation, as to whether or not the user of the software was in Russia. And if they were, it would overwrite their files with emptiness. What? Yes, he made it malicious. Not based, a little bit malicious, a whole lot malicious. Very malicious. And wow. based on a very, very crude metric of whether or not you're in Russia, which is geolocation based on IP address, it's just not accurate. Also, just because you're in Russia doesn't mean you're even the tiniest bit in favor of Putin's invasion. So that just to me, like, I, that's not gray anymore. That just utterly crosses the line. So... NPM agreed. You could, you could be the, using a VPN and have an IP address in Russia. You could, if you particularly like Russian non-existent Netflix, because um, they pulled out. But yeah, you're right. You could be using a I mean, VPN could because be a you have reason to try to see what's going on inside Russia. You could be a journalist trying to figure out what exactly. is going on inside Russia. Yeah, exactly. Um, or you could be using a block of IP addresses that were used by a Russian company a few months ago, have since been sold and now being used by someone in Vanuatu. And Oof. the IP geolocation database hasn't updated. Therefore, it's still marked as Russian. Oh, geez. 
Did that happen? Right. I mean, it didn't happen, but I'm just saying geolocation is a terribly inaccurate technique. It's a guess. It's useful for defaulting the language on a web page. Well, and governments have been used, have tried to do it to say, oh, you clearly committed this crime because uh, it came from your IP address. Which is also meaningless. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so there's there's two levels of meaninglessness. The IP address is meaningless and the geolocation is meaninglesser. And just because you're in Russia doesn't mean anything either. So at, at, at all sorts of levels, this was just utterly inappropriate. And NPM immediately rolled back the malicious uh, update to Peace Not War. But the non, or the medium malicious, the grey version remains in place. I checked oh. today as I was writing the show notes, and if you go to Node IPC and go to the tab that says dependencies, you will see Peace Not War is still listed. Did they suspend his account? I didn't see that written. Wow. I don't know. Wow. I just know that the deleting your files doesn't happen because NPM were like, oh, no, 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 no. There have also been no updates of the package since they were they pulled back the release with the maliciousness. So that does imply he may not have access to his account at the moment. Hmm. It hasn't done anything since. But that also may just mean that he's decided that, oh, oh goodness, I went too far. I'm going to go hide for a while because the internet hates me. So the lesson here is... Do not suck in dependencies to your code automagically behind your own back. You don't know what you're getting automatically. The act of updating your dependencies is a deliberate act that you undertake once or twice a month at most, unless you have a really good reason. Because, again, this was only a problem for a couple of hours because NPM immediately dealt with it. But if Mm. you're automatically sucking something on the hour every hour, well, even if it only lasts for, you know, three hours, you've been hit three times. Okay. So basically, the notion of just trusting code from other people without checking it is just not a good idea. Other people do nasty things. Right, right. So do I get to lead the next one? I was rather hoping you would, because you have first-hand experience with the the company and the devices. So for a while, I recommended the Wise cameras, which are cute little uh, cameras that are about uh, one-inch cube kind of uh, security cameras and they were all the rage and they've come out with a lot of different versions and the company has expanded into a lot of different kinds of devices. Um, But they've done something really, really bad. If the uh, too long didn't read version of this is that if you have a generation one wise cam, as Bart would say, you need to throw it in the bin. It's not safe to use in any way, shape or form. But the story, that's not me saying that that's wise. Well, well, yeah. not saying it strongly enough, but they do sort of kind of say it. Yeah. Well, so what we do know is that in March of 2019, the security company Bitdefender informed Wise that they had found a major vulnerability in the cameras. Basically, attackers could remotely control the cameras and view videos saved on the SD card. They couldn't watch a live stream, but any video saved to the SD card, which is why you put the SD card in it, they could see. And, you know, a lot of people use these to watch their children. You know, they use them as, as nanny cams. It's This is really, really bad. But what makes it even worse, so problems happen, you know, Bitdefender told Wise, okay, that's great. Wise didn't even acknowledge receipt of the report until November of 2020. That's March of 2019 to November of 2020. And they didn't patch the vulnerability until January of 2022. So that's pushing three years by the time they patched the vulnerability from when Bitdefender told them that it was vulnerable. In February of 2022 is when they discontinued the V1 camera, not back in 2019. And they did that because they can't patch the hardware at all. 
And uh, so they told users, you know, the camera is incompatible with the security update. And if you keep using it, it's kind of at your own risk. That's not throw it in the bin. This thing is unsafe. And we forgot for three years to tell you. Um, Wise never disclosed any details on it. And the only reason we do know the details is that they were leaked to the press. And, you know, you got to also look at Bitdefender and say, so you knew about it and you didn't disclose it. And, you know, it's it's common practice in the security community in a fairly short length of time, 30, 60, maybe 90 days. If a company doesn't respond, you go ahead and you expose it. And Bitdefender said, well, we didn't think it was right to put all those users, you know, millions of users at risk. They were at but risk, you did. but they just didn't <laughs> know they were at risk is all they, that they did. And so their response is not being widely accepted, I don't think, in the security community. And, no. you know, you can't picture how they could have done this worse. What we always say is, you know, if a company finds they find a problem, they they fix it, they tell everybody you know, you dust yourself off and you get back up. But this is, this is to me, this is the, the kiss of death to the company from my perspective. I'm not going to recommend these cameras. Um, there's other cameras out there that are almost as inexpensive, but by companies that we don't know are evil at this point. Um, I've been buying uh, Eufy cams. I bought a couple of those and they're, they're, their imagery is better and they're only about five bucks more, maybe 10 like and 30 Yuffie bucks. are owned by Anchor, who right. are a company we have a long-standing, like, they, they are have well-respected within the community. They have earned yeah. trust. And, and earned, they're also an inexpensive company, supplier. You know, they're, you, you buy them because they're yeah. good and inexpensive. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I don't know that I'm going to today throw away my V2. I, everything I have now is V2 and V3, you know, uh, the Wise Campan, and I've got some outdoor cameras. So I, I'm definitely not going to just toss those immediately, but I'm certainly not going to give Wise any more of my money. Yeah, and at the end of the day, you do kind of have to think to yourself, okay, so these are now patched. And, you know, throwing stuff away is not zero cost to the environment. So while deciding never to give any more of your money to Wise is wise, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think making more pollution is probably an overreaction, unless it's a V1 camera, in which case you can't be safe. Right. So, right. so you really do have to throw it out. And I'll just echo what you said, Alison. So I'm now that I am a homeowner instead of a renter, I am slowly expanding my home automation sphere. I've, I'm, I have the brakes on because I kind of want thread and matter to be established mm. before I go too far. But I am definitely keeping my ear to the ground and making a mental note of... I literally have a folder in pocket of all of the things I'm thinking of buying. Um, <laughs> and you can take things out of pocket, like wise. <laughs> yeah, precisely. So I went in and had a look in my in my folder and they're, they're gone. Um, mm-hmm. But you fear in there, along with um, a reminder to myself that the CEO of Anchor did an interview with Neelai Patel on his podcast. Mm. And it was amazing. Oh, really? I have so much faith in Anchor based on the frank, honest, and sensibleness of that conversation. Oh, neat. Okay. He was, like, he was just a great CEO. He was technically on the ball, and his attitude was just spot on. Like, he was thinking about the world in a way that I found in harmony with what I would like. (laughs) So that's good. Great interview, yeah. Um, so yeah, and I, I expect good things from that company because if you're led by someone like that, then I expect good things to happen. That's good to know. Yeah. 
Um, and my soundcasting headphones are from another Anchor-owned company whose name I now can't remember. Audio Core, Core Audio, I think. Oh, like okay. They okay. they have lovely, very, very inexpensive noise cancelling headphones compared to the Apple ones. <laughs> it is very interesting that they they obfuscate their connection to Anchor. Because to me, when I heard it, Anchor, Eufy was anchored, that's when I said, oh, okay, then I'll buy them. I think it's about branding because the headphones, their icon is awfully Beats-like. Mm. And I think there's a... There's a branding thing going on there where the headphones are trying to sort of cash in on on sort of the Beats generation. Right. But why would you obfuscate? The, the, I know it's a brandy decision. It's just a brandy decision I find very curious. Like it, it obfuscates something good. I, I, he did address it in the interview. I don't remember the exact answer, but because hmm. um, it was one of the things that was asked, like, is that not a bit confusing? And he did actually have an answer that I didn't think was ridiculous. I, okay. I don't remember whether I thought I would do the same thing, but then again, I'm not the CEO and I haven't earned the right to make the decision. <laughs> Um, but but it I have the stupid. right to say they're wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, we, we all get to spend. What is it? Which podcaster says, you know, my favorite game spend Tim Cook's money? That must be a Ken <laughs> like Rayism. That sounds so Ken like Ray. It. Yeah. Anyway. So, yeah, that that is that is where we stand with that. It, it's, uh, this is a textbook case of what not to do. This just goes, if I was teaching in a business school, this is now my new you know, target for how not to run a security response and if you'd like not to be sued out of existence and be fired. And th- this is just, if you'd like not to lose all of your customers, I think this is this will be another one that I would put on my, you know, my slide deck of things not to do. Yeah, I agree. Finally, deep dive number three. On, I had two hours of spare time and I thought, oh, I'll quickly write this up and then I'll spend lots of my free time doing fun stuff. Two hours and 15 minutes later, I was like, oh, shoot, I should start cooking. <laughs> really? Because it's interesting and a lot of depth? It's because people don't do a good job of reporting on anything to do with the EU because it's complicated. And mm. so in order for me to be factually correct, I had to double check everything. Ah, okay. Because okay. everyone is just hand wavy, loosey goosey. Mm. And actually, I'm actually going to start there. Okay. Because so few people understand how Europe works that a lot of people don't understand what happened this week. So we actually do need to back up. So the European Union has been working on a major new regulation to tackle antitrust concerns raised by big tech. So this has nothing to do with moderating content. That's the DSA, the Digital Services Act, and that's next on their hit list of things to get done. You know, it's item two on their to-do list. But item one has been the DMA, the Digital Markets Act. And if you have trouble remembering that acronym, just think of the dark matter anomaly in Star Trek Discovery. That's what I will always call it. (laughs) I like it. I like it. I don't like Discovery, but I like that. Um, So, yeah, so it is antitrust, right? That is its raison d'etre. That is what it is all about. It is all about antitrust. And that will make the rest of the law make a lot more sense. Okay. And the act passed an extremely important milestone this week. Like, it is not, this was news, and this was very big news. But it's also a long way away from us having all the detail. So, the EU is not a country, right? The United States of America has a Congress, and it has a president. So, you have one house which passes the bill, another house has to pass it to, and then it goes to the president to be signed in, and it's the law in the whole country. That is right. not how the EU works. The EU is full of sovereign nations, each of which have their own unique and special ways of doing things. 
So what happens within Europe is that the European Commission, which are effectively the executive branch, they're equivalent of, they don't have a very public president, but they are the equivalent of the West Wing. Okay. Right. So everyone in the White House, apart from the president, if you get what I mean. And there's, you know, if you've watched the West Wing as a series, there's a lot of work goes on in that building other than present, you know, other than being president. So the administrators of Europe write acts and those acts have to be passed twice. First by the European Parliament, which is elected by the people of Europe. So each of us get to vote for our member of the European Parliament or MEP. And it has to be passed by the Council of Ministers, which are representatives of the governments of all the countries, which is very much like a House of Congress and a Senate. The Senate comes from the states, the House of Representatives comes from the people, the European Parliament comes from the people, the Council of Ministers comes from the governments. Okay, So, Commission make the laws, and then those two groups have to agree to pass the laws, and then they come into effect, but they don't come into effect as law. They come into effect as a rule that says every country has to pass their own law to make it so. So it is a, it is a, it's it's literally called a directive. It's a directive to tell every country to make a law too. So all these separate countries then have to come up with their own legal language. They don't get any, like, here's a boilerplate. You could, you could They do get a boilerplate. In fact, and depending on the law, the directives can be very vague or very specific. In this case, the directive is going to be the the DMA is part of our country's law, full stop, end of story, is I think how these are going to get passed. But sometimes they're way more vague with the directive is you must pass adequate provision for sick leave. Okay. Like that could be a directive, right? So they they range from the woolly as a sheep to the we agree to do this thing that Europe wants to do. So they can be really short or they can be massively long. But in this case, I think it's going to be a by the book. Every country has to pass a law that says that we agree to the DMA. But nonetheless, that's the process always in Europe. Okay. Which is very convoluted, which is why it takes years. Yeah. So as opposed to the super effective way we do it. So (laughs) that was a joke. Fair point. Fair point. But anyway, you know. So normally what happens is the commission come up with an idea, they send it to the parliament, the parliament say no, they get cranky, it goes back to the commission, the commission have another go, and it goes over and back and over and back and over and back. And this time around, they really wanted to get it right once. So they had what they're calling a trialogue. I had to look that word up to see if you'd made it up. That is a real word. It's three people talking. It's like a dialogue with three. So they got the commission... The Parliament and the Council of Ministers, they got all of their techie people, basically all of their civil servants, all of their, you know, their people who do the real work, into a room in Brussels for eight hours for a marathon session, and they hammered out a deal on what all of them agree they are agreeable to. So maybe as you get into this, you can explain why do they care so deeply about this that that they had to do that? Like, why was this so important? Well, because as the Dutch case makes very clear at the moment, tech companies are ignoring European laws and mm. just taking the fine. Yeah, yeah. So basically, every time now that the commission find a problem, they have to start a lawsuit from scratch and it takes years to get anywhere, at which time the companies have made so many billions of profit that the millions of fines are irrelevant. Okay. So they want to get some traction against these giant big companies who are bigger than Europe. Um, so the, that's the motivation. It's a pretty good motivation. So 
what has to happen now, they've all agreed in principle of what this law is going to contain. Now it has to actually pass. So the first thing is they have to write, I'm going to quote this verbatim from the press release. After the legal text is finalised at technical level, in other words, after all of the juicy bits Alison is going to ask Bart about have actually been written, (laughs) then it gets checked by the lawyers and linguists, and then it goes to the parliament and the council. And then 20 days later, it becomes law, after which point, six months later, it takes effect. So we're not really looking at six months plus 20 days. We're looking at six months plus 20 days plus an infinite timeline upon which they do the technical, uh, 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 try to come up with the technical way to make two incongruous things become true in some cases. Yep. And the lawyers then have to have their go-to. Right. And they might undo what the first lot do. So that could be quite the fun argument too. So we are by no means, I think people are saying, if we get this out the door by the end of the year, we're doing well. I think we're doing very well if we get this out the door by the end of the year. But anyway, they've made a deal on the big picture stuff, and that's important. right? They'll work out the detail later. Okay. So I thought it was really important to give these caveats, because lots of people are saying things like, this means Apple will be forced to do sideloading. Maybe. Could mean that. May not. So basically, it's very, very important to understand that anyone who's making very absolute statements is probably wrong. Right, because the details aren't written. Exactly. exactly. They've agreed so the on the structure picture. of they want of what they want, but not the how how do you actually make that happen? What what Yeah, now they have, have agreed some specifics. So the one thing that we know for sure, and that's actually quite easy to define. So remember I said it was all about being against anti competitive behavior. Right. So this is not like the GDPR where it applies to everyone. This is a very finely focused law which is only going to apply to gatekeeper companies. And to be a gatekeeper, there are very well-defined criteria. So the first criteria is you must either have a total market capitalization of 75 billion with a B euro, or an annual turnover of 7.5 billion with a B euro. So one of those two. So you've got to be big. So does that pretty much say it's the uh, Amazon, Google, Facebook? I mean, is it any company? No, no. So that's the first criteria, right? So that filter has already removed all small to medium-sized businesses and most other businesses, but there's more. So that's the first, one or the other. That's criteria one. Filtering it down further, the company must have at least 45 million, with an M, monthly active users within Europe. So active users, that that tells you what kind of companies they would need to be? It does, because again, it's about people who do platforms. Um, that's also I in mean, there. Would your somewhere. gas company be have 45 million active users? No, because there's another criteria we haven't gotten to yet, is that this law is focused in on, somewhere in these show notes is the other keyword. Oh, core platform services. So large corporations that have that provide core platform services. They have a definition of that, which comes into seven things. It's basically browsers, operating systems, app stores, um, marketplaces. So it is the stuff we know. Okay. It is the stuff we know, exactly. And they have actually defined it all. I just really, really am going to copy and paste the legalese. No. no. The point is 45 million active monthly users and, right, so the second criteria also has an and, at least 10,000 business users within the EU. 
Huh. So if you're a Facebook style company, you need to have 45 million active Facebook users and 10,000 businesses buying ads from you. Oh, oh, I see. Okay. Right? Now, would that services from Apple, would that be. Yeah, I guess I'm I sure guess Apple business, have. Business buys, they buy iPhones that have services on them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what this means is this is for the big guys. Like this, this is not like the GDPR put a lot of pressure on a lot of people, even people running a one person business. Mm -hmm. This is not that. This is very, very specific who's been gone after here. So the technical detail hasn't been written, but there is a definition of the responsibilities and the prohibitions that are going to make up the bill. So there's Article 5 is responsibilities and Article 6 is prohibitions. The Wikipedia page, frankly, has way more detail. If you want to go further, go further. I am just going to pick out what I think are the headline items in the bill. So the first one that immediately caught my eye is no data sharing without explicit consent, because this is a huge deal. So if you're a gatekeeper, you can't aggregate data from multiple services, including third-party services, without the explicit consent from the user. So this really targets uh, what Meta does, where even if you don't give them permission to do cross-site, cross-organizational access to your data, they take Facebook data and use it together with uh, the WhatsApp data together with the Instagram data. Yes. And they wouldn't be allowed to do that. Without consent. Without consent. Okay. They're also not allowed to do targeted advertising without consent. And, and I love this last bit, if you say no, you can change your mind at any time. They can provide you the buttons, but they cannot nag you more than once a year. Oh, that's sweet. That's, that's beautiful. Uh, I saw that now and someone had their thinking cap on because you just know, otherwise it'd be a pop-up every two minutes. Can we follow you? Can we follow you? Can we follow you? Well, you know, the, so the worst thing that happened to us was that uh, California passed the privacy law where they have to ask our permission about cookies every single time. I, they can't I, use a cookie to remember. I, I Right. So I, I literally, the, the one that drives me the most crazy is, is uh, it's either Stack Exchange or Stack Overflow. It's 100% of the time. Every single time I have to get rid of something that is covering the entire screen. It's just, it's horrible. I just oh, hate it. I've heard, I heard uh, Jason Snell talking about there's actually extensions you can get that say, no, 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 just track me. Just leave me alone. <laughs> just so sad. We need to revive the do not track header so that people can make a statement which every website can pick up. Yeah, that's a good but idea. But that's something where we need to have a little bit of work together between the American and the European governments because there are ways to deal with that. So anyway, that's the first thing is... Um, no sharing, no data sharing without explicit consent. The other one is that gatekeepers must allow customer choice. And this one is where the technical detail is going to be the most meaningful. This is the one where we know what they want, but we don't know exactly how it's going to be implemented. Oh, I forgot something really important I was meant to say before we got into the weeds. When this thing becomes law... It's not a case that the first thing that will happen is companies will be will be charged with violating the law. The first step is that the commission will go into negotiation with the company to figure out the best way to apply the law for that company's specific situation. Oh, interesting. That's so kind that's of co- grown up. 
it's very grown up. And because it only applies to the big companies, you can do that because yeah, you're not doing like a million negotiations. Yeah, because there's like 10 companies that are going to fit this. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, so whether or not Apple have to do full-on sideloading or whether or not there's going to be something, a halfway house, that's going to come out of that negotiation. So that's why it's really premature to say Apple will be forced to blah blah Apple will be forced to have a grown-up conversation. <laughs> and what the commission want is for there to be multiple safe and secure app stores. That is very different to sideloading. How? Well, multiple safe and secure app stores will be entirely compatible with something like the developer certificates continuing to exist and Apple continuing to do security scans of all software, but other companies being allowed to set up their own storefronts. So you can have apps that don't pass Apple's... How is that not sideloading? I thought that's the definition of sideloading. No, sideloading means you can install whatever you want. Having other app stores is like two walled gardens. It's like it's like a complex of walled gardens instead of. That seems like a distinction, you know, definitional change, but not substantive to me. Uh, so you're a malicious actor. Mm-hmm. This does not give you a way into the iPhone. What I'm describing. So you're just saying because Apple would still be allowed to do their gatekeeper stuff on the data coming in from this other app store. Right. So the apps would have to pass Apple's security review, but in terms of whether or not it's allowed to have nudity and stuff would be up to the other app store to implement their rules. I got you. But like I said, all of this is up for negotiation. Right. But you're just saying here's a scenario where that could could still be true and it's not true sideloading. Exactly. And the the quote in the show notes is from a member of the commission staff who was involved in negotiations describing what the commission are hoping for. And it really caught my eye. Multiple safe and secure app stores. He's not describing the Wild West. Right, right. Right. So that's that's the kind of mentality going into negotiation with Apple. So what they'll come up with, I don't think is going to be the Wild West, which is going to make a lot of... Linuxy people very cranky. Hmm. But again, we don't know the detail. What we do know is that the law is pretty clear about some things. So users will be able to clearly, will be free. Bleh. You have to give users the choice of browser, virtual assistant, or search engine. Now, the virtual assistant one, Oof. that one has a bit of a sting too for a lot of companies, Amazon, yeah. Apple in particular, and Google. So everyone with Facebook, really. Uh, sorry, Meta. Um, so that's, again, another very interesting one. Um, so th- well, the, and th- the that- browser one, I mean, sorry, but I would like that to be a choice. Agreed. Um, on, on Windows 11 and 10 and 8 and 7, that's been a choice in Europe. You haven't had that luxury, but in Europe, when you fire up a Microsoft OS, the first thing you're asked is, what browser would you like? Right. Well, but, and, but I mean, you could man, you can manually change it here to make it your def- a, a different default, right? On Windows, sure, sure. But I, I'm saying that you know the concept of having a browser freely choosing a browser is very, very normal in Europe, even more so than in America, where you can. In Europe, it's something you're proactively made to do. The first time you beat your OS, but you choose. But that's not what this language says. It just says allows sure, you sure. to freely choose. That it may it doesn't preclude the way that's written. Doesn't sound like it precludes that. Uh, pre-installed and by default it would be Safari. Some of the other stuff later in the law may preclude that depending on how it's interpreted. Um, They're not allowed to do self-preferencing. Ah. 
That's the actual wording, self-preferencing. So what that means is up to debate, but the words are self-preferencing. Yeah, okay. So like I say, all the, all the detail is to be ironed out still, but you'd see where we're heading here. The virtual assistant one I didn't see coming, and that's, that's a big deal. Search engine I saw coming, browser I saw coming, virtual assistant. Like, ooh, okay, that's a, that's a bit of a curveball. Yeah. And the other curveball I didn't see coming because it wasn't on the commission's radar, it was on the parliament's radar. And I had been watching what Maria Vestiger, the commissioner, had been saying, because I figured she's the one writing the law, so her opinion is what I care about. And I've been really good about listening interviews she's done on podcasts. And I really understand where she's coming from. But I didn't have a clue what the parliament were up to. So the parliament were extremely keen on having interoperability between messaging apps. Very keen. They fought for it really hard in the negotiation. Okay. And what they have ended up with may or may not actually be the problem some people assume it is. So, as best as we can tell at the moment, the requirement will be that a gatekeeper will be forced to make an API available to smaller messaging services on request by the smaller messaging service. Not to big, not to big gate, gatekeepers? Not gatekeeper no. to gatekeeper? No. Ah. This whole thing is designed to be asymmetric, right? The idea is to allow competition, so allow the little guy not to be suffocated. Right, but... Uh, sorry, I'm really sad, because I thought this applied to, like, Google Messages well, okay, and well, iMessage. But if it's right, not but if the API gate- is available, but if the API is available, the API is available. So I think if small guys ask for APIs into the big guys, I think we're going to get where you want to go. Okay. Uh, the interesting thing to me is that commission staff in interviews said, no, 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 we expect the APIs to support end-to-end encryption. So we don't want this to be the end of end-to-end encryption. We want the companies to work together through APIs so that their apps can actually interoperate, is that not make everything possible? less secure. Absolutely. It's a matter of having key sharing algorithms and stuff. Like it is, hmm. you have to write your API so that you preserve the security. And that will involve agreeing with each other on things, which will only happen under pressure. I was going to say, now we're back to my question. Is that actually possible? <laughs> I, I, I was under the impression that that was a, a null set, that end-to-end encryption and sharing data between two companies was an oxymoron. No, what you need to have is a trusted way of sharing public keys. Okay. Hmm. And that you can do through an API. Hmm. Okay. So it is not a technological or a mathematical cryptographic issue. It is a cooperation politics cooperation issue. So the commission actually could have some teeth here. Of everything I've heard, this is the thing I like the most. So I'm glad to hear you say that that is possible because uh, you kids today don't realize <laughs> that in the old days, if you were on CompuServe, you couldn't send an email to someone on AOL. It didn't, you couldn't do it. They were all standalone the way our messages are today. And if I told you that, now if try to think of that today, that sounds absurd, right? Why is it yeah. we're, we're sitting here with messaging applications that can't talk to each other? Yeah. And I remember a time when all the APIs were open, so you could have apps like Trillion and Pigeon that could talk to all of them. Yeah. And you I like one app and you could load into everything. And Adium. Adium was a lovely Mac one. I loved it. Yeah. A little duck Adium. or something, didn't it? It was a green duck. It was very cute. And Pigeon was a purple pigeon. Which is yeah, also and cute. so they actively closed them down then. Right, because all of the companies removed their public APIs. So they used to have public APIs, and then they pulled them all away. And so now it looks like we're heading back to a world of APIs, which is way less anti-competitive. 
Yeah. There was even a global standard, not a global standard, there was even a standard used by many different apps to intercommunicate, um, a Java-based one called XML, no, it's not XML or PC, it's, ah, sugar, don't Mm. go off the cuff part, write it in show notes or don't say it. There there was a protocol agreed that actually could do generic instant messaging and it was Java based and lots of people implemented it and there was XML somewhere. Anyway, it was a thing and it died because all the apps decided to just go private Ugh. and basically become anti-competitive. So I really hope this, this one gets done. That would be absolutely delightful. Uh, just to say that they're starting with one-to-one messaging being covered and they're saying within the next four years they would like to expand it to group chats and why is that why do group group chats separately because they're way more difficult as a problem really yeah because it's if you have a one-to-one it's 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 one api to go through if you have a conversation of 10 people on eight different messaging services that's a lot of apis interacting with each other that's a whole other level of technical problem so figure it out with the one-to-ones and then think about scaling it up I'm also picturing if you end up having successful but smaller messaging apps, you could have three Many. small messaging apps and two gatekeepers, and now whose API is talking to who? Uh, realistically, I think what's going to emerge are the equivalents of matter and thread. Mm. Everybody just agrees to this is how we're going to talk to each other. Yeah, and then you sell on the features above that baseline, right? So you don't differentiate yourself at the really baseline connectivity layer. You differentiate yourself on the UI, the features, and the layers above. It doesn't sound like this. the DMA gives companies much time to do that, though. I mean, it's something like Matter and Thread are taking years for people to agree. They're not going to have years. Well, no, but... I, Okay, so all the messaging stuff is on a slower timetable than all the other stuff. Oh, it is. And the group stuff is even slower. Okay. So what what they're saying is that they want people to start working on it within six months. But then I think they have at least a year, if I remember correctly. And at that point, remember that what happens is the commission go into negotiation with the companies, not that everyone suddenly starts getting fined. Well, it also does take all of the sovereign nations making their own laws. Yeah, that time has to also pass, right? Before this, correct. Be, uh, but still, that's still a short timeline compared to how long it takes to get things done. Yeah, but as I say, we shall see how it all pans out. We shall see how it all pans out. Uh, there were some other highlights, and I'm going to dig into in as much detail, but they certainly strike me as interesting. So uh, one of the ones that I think there was an American law did this recently that made me happy. Uh, it needs to be as easy to unsubscribe as it is to subscribe. Oh, yeah. Here, here. <laughs> yeah, you need basically if it's easy to get in, it has to be easy to get out. Uh, developers must be given fair access to supplementary functionalities. Uh, that is stuff like NFC chips in iPhones. Oh, interesting. The commission really have their their proverbials in a bunch because Apple Pay is the only one that can do... So in Europe, it's quite normal for banks to have their payment systems, not for it to be the phone manufacturer, and none of those banks can use iPhones. You're saying they can so only the, use iPhones? No, they can't use iPhones. So it's only Apple Pay can use iPhones and only Google Pay can use Google phones. But in Europe, the norm... Is well, no, sorry, in Google it's open. So on iOS, it's only Apple Pay can use iOS, whereas in Europe, the norm is for like you know, 
Dutch Bank of the Netherlands to have their own NFC equivalent of Apple Pay. So not to be Apple Pay, but to be My Bank Pay. And that's not possible on iOS at the moment. And that has the commission very cranky. Interesting, because that sounds horrible to me, that if every bank, every institution I worked with, I had to have a separate NFC card. No, no, you don't have to. You're allowed to. So the banks are competing with each other on having the best payment gateways. But if I just have the payment gateway on my phone, I just want that one. I don't want to have different ones for different banks. Right, but I would prefer my bank to be doing it instead of Apple Pay. I don't want Apple to be in the mix. I I have a good relationship with my bank. Why can't I just work with my bank? Why do I need to be working with Apple? Unless Apple provide me something better. How are you working with Apple? You've just got, it's just on your phone. I have to do a whole bunch of jiggery-pokery between Apple and the bank to get set up on my card. There's all sorts of, that authentication process is all sorts of jiggery-pokery both on the bank's end and I have to jump through hoops and get a text message and stuff. If it was just me and my bank, it would be much easier to debug when things go wrong. I wouldn't call it a lot of jiggery-pokery. A tiny, it is from the bank's point small of view. dose of jiggery-pokery. From the bank's point of view, it's huge. It's very complicated back end. Yeah, anyway, I don't, I don't care about them. <laughs> right. The problem is there's a market in Europe and Apple, no one who has iOS can play along in the market. So there's this competition and people are out competing each other with cool new features and Apple are stopping it happening on iOS. Mm. And the competition commissioner is cranky because there's competition being blocked. Gotcha. Uh, this, the next one I really like too. Now this is Amazon, right? Don't think Apple here, think Amazon. Senders need to be given access to sales data. Sellers. Sellers. What did I say? Senders. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Sellers need to be given access to sales data for the things they sell in marketplaces run by gatekeepers. So I also think of of, uh, Apple on that as well, because they... They're one of the complaints of iOS developers is that they don't get access to who their customers are. That... Sales data doesn't mean who, but you're right. There is probably a lot... You're right, actually. There's probably a lot of room for iOS developers getting a lot more information on who's buying their apps. Yeah, I would I would think that has to... I mean, because what, what data do they not have today on Amazon? Sellers know that they somebody bought something. They know who bought it. They know where they I live. I don't think they know the search words it was sold on necessarily and all that other metadata that that that, that Amazon would know. And Amazon are okay. in a lot of trouble with the commission because they monitor what happens in their store and then in, release their own Amazon right. Essentials product to compete with it. Yes, that, that yeah. And that, that rubs the commission cool. up the wrong way quite badly. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is that gatekeepers can't rank their own services higher than others i.e. a ban on self-preferencing is the exact word from the bill. Right. I like so that, that is, one. Yeah. I, but I, I, I also want there to be a way to just say, no, no, I really do want to see the Apple thing for this search. You know? But that's okay, right? If you search for Apple space blah blah then there's absolutely positively no problem with self-preferencing there. Right. But if you search for blah blah and Apple pin their own... Res- well, that's Apple's the wrong example here. Google would be the perfect example, right? Google pinned their own thing to the top of the search results. Uh, no, Apple uh, was doing it too. I think they, In the store, I guess, off. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, fair, fair. But yeah, again, I agreed. Uh, if you look for Apple stuff, you should find Apple stuff. And if you look for generic stuff, you should find generic stuff. But I'm going to get my ever-so-slight Apple bias badge stripped from me from this episode, Uh-oh. aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, like a hater. 
there is a lot of stuff to dig into here if you want to dig further. There are links in the show notes to the press release, which is probably the best way to get the feel of what the what the European Commission are up to. Um, a very good, I think the best overview I read was from TechCrunch. It's not, it's it's that nice Goldilocks zone, not too long, not too short. Mm. Um, I think it's sort of the best one. And then for a more Mac point of view, nine to five Mac have um, have have you know they're they're looking at what it means for Apple. But again, there's a giant thing maybe goes across it all. Could force Apple. Right? That word "could" is doing a lot of weightlifting on that headline. <laughs> I think overall this is a good thing, and it's going to be really interesting to watch how it rolls out. I, I agree, um, and it looks like it's going to be a lot more advantages for a lot less hassle for most people compared to the GDPR. Which I think is good on balance, but the GDPR has a lot of rough edges. I think this is better. Practice makes perfect. Well, we, well, we, haven't, third seen, act. we haven't seen the technical detail yet, though. Give them time. Fair, right? fair, fair. Yeah, as I say, we stay tuned. But it was a big deal to get an agreement between those three bodies. Because they like to argue with each other. So that is a big deal. I'm glad you took the two hours and ten minutes. <sighs> It was, yeah, like I say, there was a lot to digest, but I'm glad I did too, because everyone's asked me about these things and I hate hand-waving. You know how uncomfortable I feel when I'm making it up as I go along? <laughs> I hate doing it. I, I okay. the Mac Geek Cab this week and Dave Hamilton's at the other end. He says, I've already told you more than I know. Is his favorite phrase. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lovely turn of phrase. Sorry, I said that right when Bart was drinking coffee. <laughs> And you can see me too. Well, it's the last swig of coffee. Boo. It was tasty coffee. Okay, action alerts. We have two that get an exclamation point. Uh, Google Chrome have patched a mysterious zero-day bug. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch on your Chrome. It will download the update automatically. So basically turn Chrome off and turn it on again. And you'll okay. be fine. I saw people on our Slack saying, yeah, or you should use a different browser. And I'm like, no, this is just responsible. This is just what they should do. There are I bugs. think they meant for other reasons Maybe. rather than for this reason. I, I, I think it's because it's become this bloated spyware thing. Well, okay, that's a that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> it is. I mean, I, I was once a big fan of Chrome because it was slick and fast. And it is many things, but it is neither of those two things. Ah, but they've got a new version uh, either coming out or has come out that they claim they have statistics to show is significantly faster than Safari on the Mac. Well, I... Good. Actually, right? no, I'm not open to be convinced because unless they strip out all the spyware, I don't care anymore. Well, okay, that's, a, that's another time. <laughs> it is. That's what I say. I, I mean, I was one of the people who turned in, but I didn't mean because of the security bug at all because this is what you're supposed to do, find bug fix, right? Nothing, right. This see, is not wise. <laughs> yes, see, see next topic. Right, exactly. Apple pushes out two emergency zero-day updates. Get them now is how... Um, that's how uh, Sophos Naked Security Blog put it. Um, but yeah, and actually Apple pushed out... So there are two zero days. So iOS and uh, macOS have those. But actually they also pushed out other updates to Monterey and a bunch of other stuff as well. Wait, Monterey is that one. Apple pushed out other other updates too, but the zero days are in iOS and macOS, which is kind of the most important too. So patchy, yeah. patchy, patch, patch. I did not realize they were zero-day exploits or zero-day bug fixes. I uh, did them uh, to most of my Good. devices, but I didn't uh, didn't know that they were zero-day. Now I do. Yeah, yeah. But you're protected, so all is well. Uh, worthy warnings then. Um, Naked Security are warning about a piece of ransomware called Deadbolt that is abusing the fact that there was a vulnerability in QNAP NAS devices that was patched about two years ago. 
And yet, to this day, there are NASs sitting on the public internet that are unpatched. And this ransomware, very cleverly, first goes to your NAS device and deletes all of your backups, then goes and does a normal ransomware attack and deletes all of your primary data, and then says, please give me all of your money or you're never getting your data back. Jeez. Yeah, so patch your bloody QNAPs. Mm. It's definitely the moral there. Notable news then. Um, there's been a lot of talk about this another major vulnerability in a Java thing, right? It's called the Spring Framework. It's also getting a lot of press because it's by VMware, so people are hearing the word VMware and assuming it has something to do with the VMs they're running on their desktops or the cool toolbox they're running. Actually, no, that's parallels. People assume it has something to do with virtualization and that's very popular. Nothing to do with any of that. This is a framework for people writing Java code. Basically, it's enterprise IT guys and gals. Okay. So... If you know someone who works in enterprise IT on a bunch of Java stuff, you probably want to buy them another coffee. Okay. Probably still recovering from Log4J, but definitely buy them another coffee. Maybe you should just start up a, uh, a Patreon of uh, coffee for them. <laughs> Maybe that's the thing to do. Buy them a subscription to one of those fancy pants coffee things. Um, in the United States, the Federal Trade Commission has entered a consent decree, which is basically a way of saying they reached a settlement with... Cafe Press, who are a company I once respected. To be honest, I lost that respect a while ago for other reasons. But anyway, um, the actual quotation, the actual quote, data breach cover up is what's mm. actually in, I think it's in the press release from the FTC, actually describe it as such. The company will pay half a billion dollars of a fine and submit to biennial, i.e. every two years, because I'm doing my best to learn that word, so biannual is twice a year, biennial is every two years. So every two years for the next 20 years, they must submit to a security update and they have to pay half a billion dollars. To a security assessment. Yes, what did I say? Uh, update. Oops. No, Those assessment. words go together, security update. <laughs> that is, yeah, they do in my head, yeah. So I did business with them at one time. They uh, uh, had them making shirts and they never paid me. Yeah, I, I, I tried like to... That. I tried to use them and I never got as far as even getting my storefront set up before they managed to mess me up. Mm. And I was like, okay, fine, I'm done with you. But I'm kind of glad now. There's people who will. So we don't know exactly what they did. Oh, no, we have full detail. If you want to to see the full detail of what they did, uh, it's in the, basically the Federal Trade Commission raked them across the coals. Like their security was awful before they were breached and they get hammered for that. Then they were breached. And then their response to the breach was awful and they get hammered for that. And they lied about it. I wonder whether they can just boilerplate that over to Wise. <laughs> Stay tuned. This, this actually might be worse because Wise said nothing. These guys were dishonest. Oh, they lied. Oh, good. Yeah. So it's, it's, almost, it's almost fun reading the summary on Naked Security, to be honest. Like... The FTC went to town on these guys. It's like, really? There is no doubt about their feelings on the matter. Brian Krebs is warning of a very annoying new development um, in terms of tricking major tech companies, including Apple and Meta, into handing over user data. Mm-hmm. So normally to get user data in the United States, you have to get a subpoena, right? So you go to court, you get a subpoena, and then Apple hand over the data. But in cases where there's an immediate threat to life, there's a procedure for submitting an emergency data request. 
And for obvious reasons, when an emergency request comes in, there isn't time to double check everything. So it comes down to the fact that it has to be from a legitimate law enforcement contact. And unfortunately, America doesn't have, like, America basically has lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of small law enforcement agencies, all of which have their own security infrastructure. So the entire system is as secure as the weakest mail server in any police department in the United States. Because mm-hmm. what's happening is bad guys are spear phishing the smaller police departments to get access to legitimate law enforcement accounts and then make emergency requests. Oh. And they're succeeding because, frankly, how on earth are Apple supposed to know that this emergency request where there is a danger to life and limb, an immediate danger to life and limb? So a lot of people are like, oh, Facebook, Apple, Facebook, Apple. And I'm like, no, system problem here. There needs to be some sort of centralized, you know, login with law enforcement portal or something. Like, someone has to do the equivalent of, like... Actually, this is being worked on to some extent, right? There are... There's one of the government agencies that's working on centralized identity management for the US government. So maybe this will go away over time. I didn't catch what they got. What kind of data did Uh, they get? Do we know? Anything that they could get with a subpoena. So, you know the way you can subpoena Apple to get all of the non-encrypted data out of your iCloud? Right. Well, anything that Apple have they would have to hand over. But so did they, but I mean, is this targeted? Like saying, I want Allison Sheridan's uh, data? Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Yes, so, in the same way that a subpoena is, theoretically. Okay, so it wasn't one of the uh, what are they, fishing nets where they scoop it all up kind of thing. I, I forget the phrase for that. Uh, dragnet. Dragnet, right. Yeah, no, it, it's, it, it's more fishing with a hook. Okay. <laughs> if we're going to keep on the fishing analogy, it, it's, you know, I am requesting specific information on these specific people or persons because there's a danger to life and limb and they obviously use the appropriate procedures because they're in a hacked account. Okay. I don't, apart from better security within law enforcement as a whole, I don't see an answer to this. Mm. What do you do? Uh, in probably good news, um, Ron Wyden is on the ball and is trying to, the Senate uh, basically starting to investigate how to deal with this. So, okay, Ron Wyden has a track record of doing smart things on IT security. So go for it, Senator. Uh, and finally, and I'm, I'm with Ken Ray on this one. He's like, how was this not a thing? Apple won't repair your iPhone if it's listed as stolen on the international database of stolen um, phones. Uh, you stuttered a little bit and said uh, repay, you, uh, repair. They won't repair it if it's listed as stolen. Yeah. How were they rep- how is this not a thing? So anyway. I guess it sounds obvious in retrospect, but uh yeah. Well, yeah. Uh and a related tip, uh Ken did a checklist not on why wasn't this a thing, but on okay, so if your phone is stolen, what are you supposed to do? Mm. So that's actually a very good episode. I have use, a bookmark. Use find my device to chase down the bad guys on your own, right? <laughs> Spoiler alert, no. (laughs) Quite expressly, no. (laughs) The Darwin Award goes to... Yeah, that is a pretty good way to get yourself one. Yeah. Um, It was World Backup Day on the 31st of March, uh, and there were five good data recovery tips over on the Naked Security blog from Sophos, so that's one to send your friends and family, because I think everyone listening here 
probably already does what those five tips said, but so, you know, hey, presto. And Alison, you chimed in here with an extremely good tip. Yeah, so uh, you've probably been planning on doing offsite backups. If you're not already doing it, you probably are thinking, oh, I really should do that. And I love Backblaze. Backblaze is the bomb. I mean, it's, you've basically got access to all of your data anywhere you are. So think of it as a way to just log into a website, get to your desktop. You've got everything available to you. They send, if you have a data recovery problem, they'll send you a drive. They FedEx it overnight and you get the drive, you take all the data off, you send it back and you pay nothing for that recovery. They're really, really good. My Pat Dangler did a test of it. It worked just like they said on the tin. Um, it's not very expensive. It's 60 bucks a year, I think, per person. Uh, machine you're getting backed up. Anyway, I love it. If you've been thinking about doing it, I put my affiliate link in the show notes. So uh, if you use that, you get a free month and so do I. Ooh, that's nice. Um, I just got a double double thumbs up that one. Um, I have been a Backblaze customer for quite a few years uh, at your recommendation, Alison. Mm. Um, and I also use them for other backups because they have an Amazon compatible bucket system. So I actually have server backups being written to a bucket on Backblaze because their pricing is very reasonable too. And they have a nice API. Yeah, I think they call it uh, B2. B2. Yes, that's I, I I was blanking on the name of it because I hadn't I didn't realize you'd added this into the show. So I use their B2 storage um to back up my servers and it works fantastically. Yeah, so, they're, they're really fan. fast too. That was the big thing I noticed when I switched from CrashPlan to Backblaze when CrashPlan wrote us all off as home customers. They uh it took they give you 30 free days on CrashPlan and that was really important because it took 26 days for my data to get up there. I had so much. So you had a I, four day trial. What's that? You had a four-day trial to see if you like it. Right, right. Uh, well, you could use it in the meantime, but uh, but I did use it for a long time like that. But when I got Backblaze, it took 16 hours. And my data had grown over the years. So it's, yeah, it's a great service. Love those guys. Yeah, I, I, I just don't, I completely agree with you. It's just, it, I have that little fiery flame icon sitting up in my menu bar making me happy. Just and they let you know there. when it didn't work. They'll say, hey, you know, we haven't heard from this device in a little while. And you get a little email update saying how many files they have backed up successfully as well. It's also nice. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that the only thing left then is for me to cleanse your palate. Um, and I think, Alison, I like this one. Um, so there is a podcast I love called Business Wars. And they tell the story of some sort of corporate rivalry. And we've had all sorts of fun ones like um, Starbucks v. whoever the hell their competition were, um, uh, McDonald's v. Burger King, all sorts of fun ones, right? Lots of fun ones. Actually, one of the ones I loved was Boeing versus Airbus. That was amazing. But anyway, they have done a special episode to sort of catch you up on the most recent state of play in the EV market because... They are previewing their next upcoming rivalry. That's going to be their next mini series: Tesla versus Detroit. Ooh, that sounds fun! So I am definitely going to be tuned into that one. Yeah, so it's a it's about a forty five minute special on the current state of play in EVs. I thought it was very enlightening. Actually, I really enjoyed it, and uh, that is the preview of the upcoming Tesla v Detroit uh, business wars. So I love the podcast as a whole, and this is this is just I'm looking forward to this. So there you go, double tip. That's going to be a lot of fun. Well, this was good. I can't believe we got through it in only an hour and 15 minutes, actually. that I looked at that and was like, whoa, this is going to be a two-hour security bits if we're not careful. 
Well, the good news is I gave, I, I told my darling beloved to have dessert ready an hour and a half after we started recording. So I'm now eight minutes from dessert, which is perfect. So I get to have a nice chat with you. I'm not stressed or worried. And I have dessert almost ready. All right. Well, this has been great. Thanks so much for doing it, Bart. We will see you again in a couple of weeks. Indeed we shall. And until then, folks, remember as ever, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget, there will not be a live show next week on April 10th. There will be no live show. There will be a show. The show will come out. It'll either come out real early on Thursday or late on Tuesday. Haven't decided yet, but there will be a show. Just no live show. I don't want to go over on uh, next week and see a bunch of sad people. were like, oh, where's the live show? Okay, so there's no live show next week. There is a show. Anyway, did you know you can email me at any time at allison at podfeet.com? If you have a question or a suggestion or a review you want to do, send it on over. You can follow me on Twitter as well at podfeet. And if you want to join in the conversation, I really highly recommend you to join our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack. You can go in there, talk to all the other lovely Nocilla castaways, and, uh, and it's a really, really good time. So remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You can support the show at podfeet.com slash Patreon and help me pay the bills or with a one-time donation if you don't want a recurring expense at podfeet.com slash PayPal. Did I remember to tell you there's no live show next week? Anyway, I'm going to miss you all and we'll see you in a week. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.